I was the first person in my family to graduate middle school. So uh, let alone high school, college, and uh, went on to get a, a, a postgraduate degree. So, uh, but it was those early times at 10, 11, 12, in that building, those black men instilling those values about competition and work ethic, and then watching Curtis Aiken uh, put in the work and get all of these rewards that we all as young people would like to experience, at least in my world, basketball meant so much that I had a great example right in front of me to look at that I could see in person, on TV. And then when he got to college, I could see, I, I was able to make that correlation and uh, it gave me a real uh, uh, path. I want to create something that I wish my younger self could have had when I first entered the profession, which is a platform to serve and impact the next generation of coaches. Young coaches, young professionals, young leaders, they need to see black faces and they need to um, know their story. Personal lives are generally publicized within our profession. So our platform will be very unique because our guests will all share their powerful stories to help our listeners unlock their potential greatness. Guys, this interview that we are about to um, recap here is with Rob Lanier. He is the head men's basketball coach at Georgia State University. Um, Man, what a smart, smart guy. Um, I first met Rob with uh, with a step-up symposium. I, I work with a step-up symposium, as you guys probably hear me talk about. And he has always been someone who's there. He's a part of our board. Um, and, you know, I was like, man, we have to have him on. He's a smart, thoughtful, um, had a really good career um, as a young coach. And I think you guys will really enjoy, you know, what he has to say. A few things that we kind of took away from it was one, Rob had uh, an interesting start on life. Um, he basically, he and he'll, he'll talk about this in an interview, but he was independent, kind of made his own decisions at 10. Um, and he talked about the importance of role models that he had. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, the second thing that was big that we thought about was, you know, he's a really confident communicator. And then, you know, Nick and I kind of dug into that a little bit. And that's kind of what he leans, leans on as a leader. And that's kind of something that he always wants to try to improve on. Um, and he thinks it's really important. And then the third thing is kind of, well, one of his core values in his program is that is to respect women. Um, so of course I was real big on that. I was like, oh yes. Oh yes. My son is coming to play for you. So uh, we, we love this interview and we know you guys will, will love it as well. Yeah. Rob was, was awesome. You know, something that I took away from each <clears throat> along with those things too, is just humility. You know, he's somebody, man, that I think really embodies that. And that's how he carried himself, not only throughout our interview, but if you watch him from afar, because I haven't had the opportunity up until the time we, you know, interview him to, to get to know him. Um, that's a trait that I've always kind of taken from him. It's just his humbleness, no matter where he's from. I, obviously, I've seen him at Tennessee, and then obviously you see him as a head coach, you know, at Georgia State. So it was definitely a big-time opportunity to get to know him and then kind of just see what he's about and kind of the man he is. I think, you know, one thing that he's going to continue to talk about too, man, is his family. You know, he talked about how, you know, the importance of taking that Georgia State job 
you know, had to sit right with his family. He had to make sure that it wasn't going to obviously affect his son, who at the time was a was a, a, a college player or who's a high school player going to college, you know, but he didn't want that to affect him, um, kind of moving him from school because his family obviously was all really good and set in Tennessee. And so um, that was an interesting story when he talks about how kind of on their way back from a, you know, a game, it's like he receives that phone call and he mm-hmm. has the entire family in the, in the car and it's kind of like, oh man, like this is real. This is something that possibly can happen. Um, and so I'm, you know, I think you guys going to enjoy it. Um, I think he was so real. I think he was very transparent and honest. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Um, family is important and it is good to see men who are successful coaches and successful leaders in sports in general. Talk Absolutely. about it because it's something that you can kind of easily be like, all right, let me put this on the backboard right quick. But, you know, if you start that early, you know what I'm saying, it, it's, it's going to be hard to just kind of throw your family in there at, in the middle or at the end. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I'm glad that you brought that up, Nick, because having them right there, uh, we making this decision together, you know what right. I'm saying, that goes far. Um, and also, like, it it helps you. It helps you be a better coach and a better leader. Yeah, guys, you guys are going to enjoy this. Um, if you just – one, if you want to be a coach. Two, if you want to be a leader. If you want to see how a uh, uh, excellent black man operates in his profession, you're going to get a lot out of this interview. Um, get your pen, get your notebook, get ready. Uh, we got a lot. We got the heat coming to you. Enjoy. Welcome back. We are here with Rob Lanier, head men's basketball coach at Georgia State University. Welcome to the show, Coach. We really appreciate you being here with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you guys. This is the Black Excellence in Sports podcast, where we highlight those who we believe have demonstrated Black excellence. We want to highlight the story, your voice, your testimony to inspire others to unlock their greatness. Coach, when you think about Black excellence, how would you define it? What comes to mind when you hear that? Well, the first thing I think of when I hear about when I hear that phrase is the the inherent challenges that we all face as a community. Um, And anytime you see somebody from our community uh, achieving at the highest level, you know right off the top that there's a story associated with that individual that goes beyond that platform that they've reached, that... uh, that there's some inherent struggles that comes with being a part of the black community and trying to make your way in this world. So there's a, there's an added uh, level of uh, perseverance associated with uh, a black woman or a black man uh, achieving a certain level of success in, in, in the world that we live in. So, um, there, to me, I, when I see people that are, are making it and making a difference in the world uh, from our community, there's just a, a, an added level of respect that I have for those uh, in the industry that I'm in. Uh, and, um, you know, my wife is a, a, a licensed physician, and I know that she's operating in a world where she is truly a minority. Um, and so the, the, the level of substance and persistence and resilience you have to exhibit to reach a certain level in this world, uh, I think is uh, commendable. And uh, 
And so I, 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 uh, there's just a level of admiration that I have for anybody that's having a level of success. And in particular, those from our community because they've got added challenges. Well, is there anyone in your life that you can say has demonstrated black excellence that have allowed you to grow in the position and not just professionally, but in life as well? Well, my, my story is unique. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, I didn't have a, a lot of uh, role models, you know, uh, when I was really young. You know, my, my, my mom didn't have a formal education. Uh, my father wasn't in my life, but he only had a third grade education. So when he did come into my, my life a little bit later, I was already relatively independent. And I, I, I've been making my own decisions since I was 10 years old. So uh, relative to that, there, there were people that I looked up to. Um, and because I had a passion for basketball in particular, um, the role models that I found, I found them in that arena. And uh, when I was when I was 10, uh, I, I went to a place called the Maston Boys and Girls Club in Buffalo, New York on the east side that was run by a, 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 a group of black men. And I didn't know much about them as husbands or fathers, but inside that building, um, these men taught myself and a lot of my peers, um, in my mind, all of the values and principles that have guided my career professionally um, uh, through high school, through college, uh, the, the, the lesson of perseverance, the lessons of, about hard work and how to apply it, um, just the cause and effect of what you put in and what you get out of, out of it. There were black men in that building every day that held us all to a standard and I was paying full attention. And as I was going through that process, there was a, a, a gentleman by the name of Curtis Aiken. Curtis was a McDonald's All-American, Parade All-American. He was three or four years older than me, but he carried himself in such a way um, that I admired so much. Uh, even as a sophomore in high school, when he would be interviewed on TV, I would watch his interviews, the way he articulated himself. And then when he would be in the, the Boys and Girls Club the next day, I would watch him, I'd follow him around, I'd get close enough to him just to listen to what he was saying, but also uh, uh, try to be mindful of not being intrusive. Um, but I, I really uh, admired this gentleman so much. I wanted to be like him in a lot of ways. And I would see him shoot thousands of jump shots and then I would see him on the news the next day and I made that correlation through him that what he was accomplishing was the byproduct of the work he was putting in. And while that was happening, he didn't even know how much I admired him. He's one of my close friends now. And uh, it, it wasn't until we were adults that I actually was able to sit down and explain to him the effect that he had on, on my life and my journey because he gave me some tangible evidence of what it takes to be successful. Um, and for someone that was young and making a lot of his own decisions and, and trying to figure out the world on my own, um, he served as a powerful example of some just simple things. And I was already a good student. I was conscientious. I was blessed to, to be a young man who was thoughtful in, in those ways. And, and uh, I was the first person in my family to graduate 
middle school. So uh, let alone high school, college, and uh, went on to get a, a, a postgraduate degree. So, uh, but it was those early times at 10, 11, 12, in that building, those black men instilling those values about competition and work ethic, and then watching Curtis Aiken uh, put in the work and get all of these rewards that we all as young people would like to experience, at least in my world, basketball meant so much that I had a great example right in front of me to look at that I could see in person, on TV. And then when he got to college, I could see, I, I was able to make that correlation and uh, it gave me a real uh, uh, path. Uh, so I, I, I attribute a lot of uh, my journey to uh, that place and those people. And in particular, Curtis had, had a unique uh, effect on me because a lot of times you're idol you idolize, you know, Magic Johnson or someone you see on TV, but me, the guy that I idolized was actually three or four years older than me, but he was right in front of me. And so it gave me something that I could really, uh, it wasn't something that I, that I saw on TV and it was this grand thing. It was really something that I felt like I, I, could, I, could, I could do some of these things. Wow, coach, that is so powerful. Um, just right there, that, that's super powerful. Um, so, you know, in, in the, the, the profession that we're in, what, what separates you as a black man um, in your life and in your career? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what uh, separates me. I'm careful not to judge others and then try to uh, elevate myself, you know, in any way. Um, I, I, I know that I, I, uh, I care about young people. Um, I do, I do want to make a difference uh, for them. I think that's what makes our, our profession so special because I think by and large, the people that come into our, our profession, that, that's the reason why, is they care about young people. And so I, I don't know that I'm that much different than anybody else in that regard. Um, I try my best to be a good communicator with the people that I interact with on a regular basis so as not to create uh, much ambiguity or confusion about what my message is and what's important uh, for everybody in our, in our program and our organization. I want to be clear about what it is we're trying to do and why. And then it's important, I think, to be consistent. And so uh, communication is so key. I mean, even with all the stuff that's going on right now, I mean, part of the reason that we're struggling with the coronavirus and how we handle it because the communication isn't clear and consistent and, uh, and there's, not a, there's not a definite plan. I know everybody wants to get back, but we're not all on the same page. And I think as leaders, you know, that, that's your goal is to try to get everyone on the same page and, uh, and to be consistent in your effort to do that. So um, what I try to be good at is uh, honest and clear communication. And um, I'm still growing in that regard, but uh, it, it's something that, uh, that I think has great value. Coach, along your journey, can you pinpoint how you became a better communicator? Because I think for, for young coaches in this generation, you know, one thing we struggle with is the confidence of communicating. Um, not just very clearly to someone specifically, but to a, a mass of individuals. So can you speak on how you became 
better at becoming a better communicator? Well, you know, I, it's still a work in progress. You know, it's funny because, uh, you know, there's some guys in our, in our profession that I really admire that when I hear them speak, you know, I realize that I've got to grow, you know? Um, and so I think, uh, I, I, I would say, you know, I matured, uh, I've always been able to express myself, but I think what you just mentioned, the word confidence, uh, is one thing to have the, uh, ability, uh, to articulate yourself and communicate effectively. They ain't always the same thing, you know, um, and, you know, really standing in your square and really having conviction about the things that you believe in enhance your ability to communicate. And some people are less articulate than others, but way better communicators. And you can find examples of people that might not use uh, all these brilliant words, but their message is very clear. Uh, and then there's people who got all the brilliant words, but their but their message is not very clear, and they're talking in circles. And and so uh, I, I think uh, I couldn't pinpoint a time, but I do think as I matured, I developed greater conviction about certain things, and uh, and as a result, uh, I, it became I developed a level of clarity that allowed me to do a better job getting my message across. And as a young coach. I, I, I don't know that I always knew exactly what I stood for as a coach. And I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, as a leader, I was more concerned about my career and where I wanted to go in the profession than I was about leading young people, leading the program, representing an institution and a community. Um, and I was more worried about what it was going to do for me. And so I think that opens up. Uh, uh, you know, a situation where the communication can be inconsistent. And so I think uh, some growth took place somewhere along the line. I, w I don't know that I could pinpoint a particular time, but it had it, but it, but it's consistent with my personal growth. Could you talk about clarity a lot and I love it. Why is that so important to you and why should it be important to others? Well, I, I think uh, clarity, I think, goes hand in hand with, you know, we always talk about having perspective. You know, we're going through uh, some unique times right now. You know, I got a son that I just dropped off at college and me and my wife still have questions. Did we do the right thing? Should he be up there? Is he getting tested? Is he um, somewhere along the line? As people, we develop a level of perspective. And, uh, and I think along that line, uh, you do develop a clearer vision about what's important in life. Uh, and you also develop an understanding that you don't have all the answers. And uh, like I said earlier, I'm a work in progress and things are always changing and evolving. And there's some clarity in that, just understanding that and uh, that you don't always have to be in control and have all the answers. Um, but for me in particular, specifically as it relates to, uh, my own professional development, I, I really think I reached a level of clarity in terms of simple things about 
and I used the word conviction earlier about, you know, who am I and what's important to me and how does that manifest itself in my coaching style and being comfortable with that, with my weaknesses and hiring a staff that complements those things that I know that I'm not great at instead of feeling like I've got to have all the answers and I've always got to be in charge and I got to make all the decisions and I've got to be right or wrong or whatever the case may be. And I think there's a level of maturity um, that allows you to get to a point where you have a more clear vision on everything for how you want to run a program, um, how you want uh, your team to play on the court, uh, the way you want them to conduct themselves off the court and represent that institution that you work for. Uh, all of those things, um, I think, crystallize as you mature. And then your ability to speak to those things comes out more clearly. And, uh, and, and that's not to say you reach this plateau where you got it all figured out, because that's never the case. But certainly, um, there is a, a period of time where you get a, a greater sense of what's really important. And, uh, and I think it makes you, going back to the communication piece, it just makes it easier for you to address your players in a manner that is truly consistent and thoughtful and meaningful. And, uh, and so that, that's, that's the way we're trying to do it. It helps you with your staff. It helps you with your administration as they're trying to support your efforts. and. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, when I was a young coach, I didn't have that. And I didn't know I didn't have that until I matured. And uh, so, you know what they say about hindsight. Coach, um, I've heard you speak about helping your players see the world um, beyond basketball. Can you talk a little bit of how you do that and how, how important is that in, in your profession and in, as a coach? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I, I talk a lot about, you mentioned Leonard Hamilton. And I remember uh, one day I was in the lobby. I actually just mentioned this to him. Recently, we were on a Zoom call together. And he asked me if I wanted to be a head coach. And I said, yes. And, he, and then he started to give me some advice about, I mean, this probably was 20 plus years ago. And he said, uh, well, make sure you learn how to do everything because at some point, and with everything, he really meant like travel, scheduling, not just recruiting, but like everything. Like how does it work when you're doing travel and you gotta get a bus once you land at the airport or the bus that takes you to the airport? Um, everything that goes into it, study hall, strength and conditioning, make sure you get tuned into everything in the program because at some point you're going to have to delegate those responsibilities to someone. And when it comes time for you as a head coach to develop, to, to delegate those things, you're going to be in a better place to do that if you've done those things yourself. When I was a young player, I already had a sense that I wasn't gonna be a pro. The delusion of making it to the NBA, I didn't hold on to beyond my sophomore year. So I started preparing for life after basketball at that point in my journey. And it helped me uh, position myself 
where I could have an opportunity to start my career in coaching and get a graduate degree. And that uh, sort of realization that I came to um, is a fine line because I want young people to dream big. And dreaming big doesn't always necessarily have to deal with basketball. And I want young people to see that everything they want, they may be able to get it through basketball. But if they can't, it doesn't mean they can't have it. And everything that they want through basketball, they should still want it whether they're playing basketball or not. And I, I want them to have that realization that I had without trying to douse the flames that they have for their future in the game. I still want them to chase it. I want them to have that hunger. Um, and at the same time, I don't want them to put themselves in a box. And so um, I do think that if all uh, you do is see yourself as a basketball player or a football player or as an athlete in general, then all your goals and dreams beyond college are tied to that. And if, if you don't break out of that cycle, then you're not going to you're not going to be able to achieve those things that you want for yourself. And for me, my biggest goal as a young person was to be a father and a husband and have a family of my own. That was a bigger dream of mine than being an NBA player. That uh, no matter what I was doing, I wanted to have my own family and raise my own children. And, uh, and so I, I, I want uh, young people to see the world through a, a broader lens. And I think that's the opportunity we have when we're around them is to strike that balance between uh, their goals as a person and their athletic goals and, and to make sure that uh, it all can go together, that uh, they don't have to put themselves in any kind of box. Coach, how do you get young African-American men to believe that they can do more than just be an athlete. I know for me, growing up, I had, my mom had me at 15 years old. I still didn't even think about trying to be a pro, right? Because my whole process was to try to get an education to do a little bit more than what people deemed me to be able to do. Um, Cause people counted us out very early. But for most cases, most black African, or most African-American men and themselves, they think the only way out is through athletics. So how do you you help your young men or all the young men that you come and encounter with to understand that they can be more than just an athlete? Well, it goes back to that initial question about communication. Um, it's constant. It's a great opportunity when you say, you know, you get a guy at 18 or 19 and you've got as many as four years with him. You've got a lot of opportunities to communicate with them. You've got a lot of teachable moments. Um, and I think there's a key thing that we talk about a lot because young people come to college and they want exposure, right? That's a word that we talk about a lot. And we have an opportunity to expose them to a lot of things. And I think exposure is what broadens people's perspective. If you've never been to Europe, then you don't know what it's like in Europe until you go. And then once you go, you have a greater sense of the world at large. And you could use that example with, with any number of things. And so, but once you get exposed to that, you have a greater perspective. And the more you can expose young people to, the more they develop a greater relationship with the world that they live in. 
And if you only keep them inside that box and you don't expose them to things outside of it, then they're going to operate inside a box. And so uh, I think if you can expose them to people, places, things, history, uh, and help create an awareness of the world at large that they're involved in and try to make them an active member while pushing them to be the best that they can be and encouraging them to read and to watch movies that are educational and to meet people that can inspire them and to see things that uh, would interest them that they never knew that they would have an interest in. Um, if you can constantly keep trying to put those things in front of them and expose them to things, um, you can spark something in young people and you can use basketball as a way to connect them to other parts of the world. And I think anytime you get young people and what we try to do in recruiting is find young people that really love the game. And uh, I think young people that love the game and have a passion for it, you can connect with them on a different level and you can use that connection to expose them to other things. And so uh, guys who uh, don't love the game and don't love school, they're going to be tough to reach. Um, you can, you can help them in some ways. Guys who love school and don't love the game, you can have a respectful relationship with them and maybe they'll bring some value to your team. And guys who love the game and don't particularly think beyond the, 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 the court, you can reach those guys because you got something, really something in common. And so, um, so we look at it like that. We, we want people that uh, are serious about their futures. Uh, maybe it's academics more than basketball. Maybe it's basketball more than academics. And sometimes you get a rare young man who just is all about all of those things. And so um, those kind of people, you can expose them to things. And then every now and then you get guys who are, they're not passionate about anything, but they learn because you're trying. And uh, I've had situations where guys are, you know, five, 10 years removed from the experience. And it, it, it's caught on somewhere along the line and the, and the communication comes back around and you know that you've made a difference. And all of those things are gratifying. Coach, um, your statement about exposure made me think about um, when I heard George Ravelin on a podcast, he talked about providing his players a menu. He was like, you're going to say a lot of things, but they're not going to catch on to everything. They're not going to listen to everything. But if you give them a menu of things to choose from and kind of what you said, like just expose them to a bunch of things, eventually they'll pick something up. Um, so that was awesome right there. Thank you um, for sharing that. I want to transition here for a moment. Um, I've heard you say, I heard you talk about the the limited opportunities in Division One coaching or in college coaching in general. Um, and you talked about how getting your foot in the door by itself is a monumental task. Can you talk about how did you get your foot in the door and um, kind of give some advice around that of how you can, how anybody listening to us can get their foot in the door? Well, you know, the one thing about uh, our profession that uh, I think we fall into um, that I think is a mistake that, that uh, we inadvertently push forward sometimes in a lot of this uh, whether it's Zoom calls, whether it's these professional development symposiums that we're a part of, is that oftentimes we make the mistake of 
putting too much focus on Division One. And I think there's so many good coaches out there who are well-intentioned, who have tremendous leadership ability, whose leadership might be better served at the high school level or at the division two or three levels. And there's so much focus on division one that we actually take a narrow pool of opportunity and make it even smaller because we we've glamorize division one so much. But the kids who are playing at the high school and college levels of every level are in need of the leadership that so many great young leaders have the ability to put forth. So um, I, I, I do think that if we're speaking of division one, there's only 353 jobs in the country, give or take, you know, that changes from year to year. Um, and with that, uh, you know, I was on a call, let's say just on the men's side uh, recently where we had uh, 80 or so of all of those head coaches on the line, which means that out of those 353, uh, we're less than a third, but that's less than 100 in the world. Um, if you want to be a doctor, that's really hard, but there's millions of them. If you want to be a lawyer, that's difficult. It's a lot of schooling involved. It's tough. You know, it's a lot of hard work, but there's millions of them. But there's only 90 Division One men's coaches in the world. So there is a very, very small pool of opportunity. And so getting your foot in the door does not have any exact science attached to it. There's no one way to do it. Um, but the one thing that uh, will definitely prevent you from getting opportunity is not having a great reputation as a person and as a worker. And so the number one thing you have to do is develop a reputation. If you're a player, if you're a manager, if you're a GA and you're aspiring to be a, a coach, uh, the number one thing that needs to be associated with you is that you work hard and you treat people with respect. That's a, that's a, that's the first most important aspect of your reputation that you want to have if you want to get your foot in the door. And primarily, if, if that is your reputation and you are fortunate because still there's such a small pool of opportunity, if you do get your foot in the door, then those things that got you there have to prevail. And then from there, you have to really grow your knowledge and understanding of what goes into building a program so you can be an integral part of it. And along with that, you start to get a level of responsibility. So if you're a manager, a graduate assistant, or you're a player who you, you want responsibility, you want the coach to say, here's some things I need you to do for the good of the program and how you perform in those duties based on your work ethic and your reputation as a, as a person who treats people with respect. And now you got to be a problem solver. Now you have to have a reputation above and beyond just being a good guy. Um, and then the more, the, the better you handle those responsibilities, the more uh, 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 responsibilities are going to be delegated your way. And eventually that trust can lead to something else. Okay, you want to recruit? I trust you because everything else I've thrown your way, you've handled it. So I'm going to add something more to your plate. And that builds your reputation because now uh, uh, for many of us, one of the critical keys is to be able to prove that you can be a recruiter. 
and oftentimes there's a stigma attached with that. Um, but I've always looked at that from a competitive standpoint. If that's what's going to keep me employed and get my foot in the door, then so be it. I'll, I'll take on that challenge and I'll try to develop a, re a reputation as someone that can get players. Um, but I will not use that stigma as an excuse to not be someone who's trying to develop as a coach. And, um, and it goes back to the, the, the statement that uh, Leonard Hamilton made to me years ago that uh, try to learn how to do everything inside the program. And, uh, and I've, tried to, I've tried to do that. You know, I was 21 when I got my first job and I was named strength coach and academic coordinator because I was on a staff that we didn't have a big staff. We didn't have all the resources. So we had to do all of these things from within. So I was making $3,000. I was in graduate school working on a degree in uh, education and I was the strength coach and the academic coordinator. And back then as a graduate assistant in 1990, um, there wasn't uh, the same restrictions on what you could do on the court. So in practice, I was, I was coaching, um, but I also had classes to go to. And then I had study hall that night with the, with the players because I was the academic coordinator. And, uh, and I also had to strike that balance as a young player who was, there were a couple of players on the team that were older than me at that time um, and striking that balance between uh, being someone close in age to the players and being a professional. And, uh, and, and my ability to strike that balance, I think, uh, gave my boss even more trust in me. And, uh, and it made him uh, even that much more comfortable with the responsibilities that he was giving me. He felt like I could, I could take it on. And so uh, what I would say to any young coach is want more, you know, like uh, people used to say that, uh, you know, we used to do film exchange. We don't have to do that anymore. You know, you got these video coordinator positions, um, scheduling is a pain in the rear, take it all on. Try to, try to, try to, try to do all of those things because like when you're scheduling, you're learning a lot more about the budget that goes into building a program. It ain't just the schedule. And you're dealing with associate ADs and different people from, from your campus and other campuses. So your reputation is getting an opportunity to have more branches to it because you're dealing with different people on the campus that you normally wouldn't come into contact with because when you're scheduling, for example, there's such a budget component to that that when you're involved with that, there's a different level of responsibility that you're being given and you're, you're, you're connecting on the campus with other people and they're getting a sense for how you work. So any responsibility you could get taken on equipment, strength and condition, do it. And uh, it's going to enhance uh, not only what your reputation is, but how many people interact with you and get to carry your reputation forward. Coach, prior to your interaction with Leonard Hamilton, because it seemed like he helped shape that mindset of take on every responsibility that you possibly can so it can prepare you for your head coach and obviously delegate it to those that are working with you. Was that your mindset when you first got into the profession, however, at 21? Were you thinking that way to say, give me every job that I possibly can have so I can better myself? Or were you more so geared toward trying to do one specific thing that you thought can create your reputation, which is recruit? Because 
one thing about young coaches nowadays, that's their whole mindset is, I want to get on the road. I want to get on the road. I want to recruit. I want to show these people that this is what I can do. And I do think they, they skip over those things that are very important to help you when you get into that position of being a head coach. So just kind of, was that your focus and your mindset when you first got in? Or did that grow? I, I don't know if I thought about it in those terms. Obviously, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, uh, I mean, I didn't cross paths with Leonard. That might have been 10 years into my career. Um, I, I did know that I was ambitious. And so whatever was given to me, I wanted to do a good job. That was always my approach. Um, I, I, I don't know if I was doing it with a bigger picture in mind. I was naive and young, and I just wanted to do well. And um, there was a sense of loyalty attached to it because this gentleman had given me an opportunity, and I, I wanted to measure up to the opportunity that was being given. And this guy saying, hey, I want to trust you as my strength coach. I wanted to do a great job with that. I'm going to trust you with the academics. And I, wanted, I really genuinely wanted to do a great job with that. Um, and I wanted to have that reputation uh, with the guys like you, like we talked about earlier, because I had come to that realization that I wasn't going to be a pro. I was thinking about a career for myself outside of playing the game. And when I went into that first job, I wanted to share with the players that I was working with that they too should start thinking about life after basketball. You know, I probably overdid some of that stuff. You know, but uh, but I wanted those guys to have that same mindset that they could. Uh, that the likelihood is that uh, you know what, life after basketball at some point, sooner or later, was going to involve something other than basketball. So I was trying to carry that message, and I was trying to get those guys to attack their studies uh, with a mindset that uh, was inclusive of that. So, um, so I, I think I did to your question, but I, you know, it, I wasn't that aware of it. I, I just really wanted to do a good job. And I wanted my boss to say, you know, maybe cause I wanted to recruit and I wanted to build that trust, but whatever it was, I knew I wanted to do a good job at whatever I was being asked to do. Before we move on, cause obviously you started, you got your start at 21. You talked about it earlier that your coach respected you, so he gave you more jobs or job, obviously, opportunities. How did you have that player-coach balance at an early age? I think a lot of young coaches struggle with that. They, they, they tend to, once they finish playing or if they're not playing, they were a manager and they're young, and they get that opportunity to be in a full-time position, but now they have to go kind of be that coach mode how did you have that balance? What helped you? And can you give those that are listening some examples? Well, I think it starts with, you know, the comment that I just made is that, you know, when I was given that responsibility, I wanted to do a good job. You know, I think, I think it started there um, because uh, there was a level of loyalty to the gentleman who gave me the opportunity. His name is Jack Armstrong. Um, and uh, I wanted to do right by Jack. So I worked at trying to do things in such a way that uh, that would show him a level of gratitude for the opportunity, a level of diligence, and and uh, you know, uh, and 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 so what does that mean? Um, if I'm the strength coach 
then that means I want to see the guys get in better shape and get stronger. And so how can I lead that? Who do I need to call in order to learn more about this so I can do an effective job and I don't get anybody hurt in the process? That's a big responsibility and it's an organizational piece. What time are we going to go? How are we going to go about doing it? How are we going, you know, how much weights are involved? How much running is involved in the organization of that whole thing? Now I'm 22 years old and I'm being asked to do this. And I really dove into it. And because I became passionate about it and I worked hard at it, players responded to the fact that I was organized and I was diligent and I was always on time and I was passionate. And so uh, they, they complied <laughs> for lack of a better, you know, so we had some organization. Um, we did it in the mornings at 6 a.m. That was my decision. And Jack gave me the responsibility to schedule it that way. Um, and so uh, same thing. That night we were in study hall together and I was checking classes and I was checking assignments. And I think you can't fool young people if somebody cares and they're on top of it. They know if you're consistent and it goes back to that communication piece is that I was on, I was always honest with guys, and I do think that they knew that I cared about them. Um, and so I, I think there's something to be said for that, you know, with young people, if you're around someone, even if you're the same age as them, if you care about them and they know that what you're doing is being done with good intentions, it goes a long way. And so uh, it was a good group for me to start with, too, because I think that particular group that I was working with was really open to what I was bringing to the table. And it certainly helped my credibility with Jack. So, um, but my loyalty was to the guy who gave me the opportunity, but I really cared about the young people that I was working with and they knew that. And so uh, even though we were the same age, it would be like you have a teammate who's a leader and you respect them. I was able to establish that with the team even though uh, we were relatively close in age. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, there was a clear line that uh, I wouldn't cross with them. I didn't want to be involved in their personal lives. And you know what? I didn't engage in partying and any of that stuff anyway. So that was never an issue for me. So I never, those lines never got blurred with me. And I was always talking to them about the decision they made because like I mentioned earlier, I've been making my own decisions since I was 10 years old. I transferred elementary schools and I made the decision and I brought the paperwork home for my mom to sign it so I could take it back. But I made the decision. So by the time I was 21, um, I was pretty good at making decisions. And so, um, so I think uh, it didn't take very long for me to establish with those guys that, uh, that I had their best interests. And so those lines never, never got blurred. For the audience, I want I want to point out about making decisions. He had coach had been making decisions since he was ten years old, so he'd been having reps at making decisions. A lot of times, I hear head coaches struggle because now they now they are the decision maker. So um, just just take that in and kind of ask yourself how can you get reps on making decisions, even though that you might not be the head coach right now uh, or nowhere near at the at the moment, but that that's the thing having reps on making decisions you don't want you you to get your first job and it's the first time you've 
you started making decisions for yourself or, or for other people. Um, but I want to ask you this, Coach, um, throughout your whole career, what are some high moments or a successful moment that you've had that you were just really proud of um, in your career? Um, well, first was landing the job at Niagara um, as a GA. That was, um, you know, I, I, again, I was my, it was my first year out of college. I graduated at 21 in, in uh, June of 1990. And then uh, I turned 22 in July uh, of that year, and uh, and I got the job somewhere in that time frame. And so um, that first step of, okay, I'm going to be a Division One college coach, I'm on a staff, and uh, that level of determination and excitement that I'm going to make the most out of this opportunity, um, that was exhilarating because, it, you know, uh, I had spent – in my senior year, I, I had only needed uh, three credit hours in the spring to graduate. And then I had to complete, along with those three credit hours, an internship. Um, I was a psychology major. And so uh, as an internship, plus I was a part of the, the Big Brother, Big Sister program. So there was a young man in the community that I had a great relationship with that I was mentoring. Um, and then I, and he was in social services. So I was able to use that as my, uh, as my internship, but I had a lot of time to work on my resume and to put, to send letters out, which led to the opportunity at Niagara. So, uh, there was some buildup there because it was, you know, when you're a senior and you don't know exactly what you're going to do, um, there's some anxiety there. And so. By the time I had graduated, I didn't know what the future held. And then to get that job opportunity and to have a new career uh, uh, to chase. Now I got something specific to say, all right, here's the field that I'm in and I could go after this. Um, that, was, that was great. And then, you know, after two years there, I got a job back at my alma mater as a full-time assistant coach on the road recruiting. And that, that was significant as well, because now I'm really making a living. I'm getting a check. Um, you know, I told you guys I'm the first one to graduate uh, middle school, but now I actually have a job and a salary and benefits and a car. Um, when I grew up, we didn't have a car. We didn't have a phone. When college coaches were recruiting me, they would call my next door neighbor. and They would let me know that there was a coach on the line and I would come over and speak to the coach if they caught me. So now I'm going to have my own place, my own apartment, pay my bills. This was a, this was a big deal. I didn't need anybody to help support me or anything. I was really, you know, taking a professional step at 24 now. And so um, that was a big time in, in my life. It wasn't a lot of money. I was only making $24,000. But at the time, it was significant. And, uh, and over the next five years, you know, that, that's where I was. I was at my alma mater. So there was a level of familiarity that I had with the place and the people and the community. And, uh, and, I, was, and, and I had my first job. So that, that was, those two things were great. There's a lot of moments along the way that I, that I could cite. But, you know, just in terms of really being able to sink my teeth into, okay, if I, if I keep working at this, I can, I can 
I can, I can make something out of this. Um, that realization when I got the Niagara job and it, it, quick story, you know, when I was at Niagara, the, the setup in the offices were such that my boss, Jack Armstrong had an office and then next to his office was like a space with partitions. So we had cubicles. And it was an afternoon when no one was around, but I was at my desk still. Most people were gone for the day, but Jack who was a really hard worker and put a lot of time in. He was still in his office, but he didn't know I was there. And he was in the next office and I could hear the conversation through the wall. And he was talking about me to someone else about a job opportunity. And I could hear what he was saying about me. And in that moment, I really learned a lesson about reputation because I couldn't control what he was saying at that moment. He could have said something bad and I wouldn't have got the job. But the words he was saying are the reason why I got the job. And, uh, and I'm forever grateful for that. But I knew I was at the mercy of whatever he was saying to that individual on the other line. And he came out of the office and saw me standing there. and was, oh, I didn't know you were here. And then he told me who he was talking to. And then a couple of days later, I was there doing an interview in person and I got the position back at my alma mater. But hearing him talk about me the way he did really taught me a lesson that when you do things the right way, this is a byproduct of that. And uh, so that was a great, great uh, lesson I learned from that. Coach, how did you prepare for that first interview? Even though you had familiarity with it being your alma mater, how did you prepare for that going from GA, restrictors earnings, to full-time assistant? You know what? I, I, I really, I don't remember, you know, exactly, you know, that time frame going into it. I was, I was confident um, because uh, Jim Barron, who was my boss at, uh, at, uh, at St. Bonaventure, he's a good, really good man. And uh, I felt like he and I had some things in common. So when I was going into it, I was really confident about, you know, I had a pre-existing relationship with him because we were both alumnus of the school. So we crossed paths before, even though it wasn't real intimate. But I felt like uh, my interaction with him was going to be a certain way. Um, and after hearing the conversation that I, that I uh, mentioned earlier, I knew that things were trending that he wanted to hire an alumnus if he could. So I could, I could screw it up, but it was in my favor. What I didn't realize is that when I, when I went down to interview that I was gonna be sitting in front of a committee and it was gonna be the athletic director, associate athletic director, and I was gonna be sitting in a room. So that part, I, I wasn't uh, necessarily prepared for, to be honest with you. I didn't anticipate that. And the, the AD was a guy by the name of Tom, Tom McConnell, uh, Tom O'Connor, who is a very respected, had been on the NCAA selection committee. And he's one of the more respected ADs around the country. And so that was a little bit, you know, daunting, you know, because uh, he even had the look of somebody important. Um, everyone else in the room I knew on some level, but sitting there in a room full of administrators was not what I had anticipated. But I think I handled it well and I spoke with confidence. Um, I remember a couple of questions in particular that I didn't anticipate that, it, you know, uh, that one in particular that I think probably could have broke, you know, 
probably could have been a deal breaker if I didn't handle it the, the way that I did. So, uh, and, and, and I was told that after the fact. So, uh, but I couldn't say that I was prepared really. Um, or maybe the fact that I didn't try to prepare and it was authentic, maybe that helped me. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Coach, I've heard you say that um, you've had to learn some things the hard way in your career. Um, what's, what's one thing that you've had to learn the hard way and what did you learn from it? Well, uh, in recruiting, um, I learned that uh, you're going to hear no a lot. And, uh, you know, early on, I, I, when I really would fall in love with somebody and want them, um, it'd be heartbreaking if I, when I lost a player. And, I, you know, one of the things I had to learn is to, uh, is to understand that that's a part of it. And don't take those things personally. Don't hold it against a young person that he, he's going in another direction. Um, and that's just not making it about myself. And, uh, and I extend that even uh, to my experience at Siena when I first went there because I didn't know what I didn't know. And uh, I had a great job at a great place where people really cared about basketball. And I, I didn't get it done. Uh, you know, we did some good things. We went to two postseasons, but we didn't knock it out. And a lot of it had to do with just me not being fully prepared to take on the leadership role of a, of a job of that magnitude at that particular time. And the connection between the role of the head coach and your relationship with the community, with the alumni, with the boosters and all of those sorts of things. I was just a young guy who wanted to coach my team, win some games so I can go to the Big East and, uh, and uh, and I and I say it all the time. I had made the situation about me, and instead of making it about the opportunity to be a leader inside of something bigger than me, and uh, and so that that probably is the the greatest lesson that I learned as it relates to being a head coach. I N A M. You say that a lot. It's not about me. And so with that, Coach, how do, you, how do you stay grounded within this profession that does idolize specific individuals for success that they have? Um, I think that's a trap for young coaches. We get caught up into what did I do so I can succeed. So how have you, how has that helped you to stay grounded by saying it's not about me? Yeah, that's a great question because, uh, you know, I, did, I haven't stayed grounded. I got grounded, <laughs> you know, uh, and that, that's, you know, going back to the experience at, at, at Siena, I got humbled by that situation and uh, over time had to look in the mirror and, and uh, learn from it. And um, I didn't, at the time, when that realization hit me, because the further I got away from that experience, the more I appreciated what I learned from it. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that I would get another opportunity to be a head coach. And, and I had reconciled that. I was okay with that. Um, I wanted it, but I felt like the numbers uh, suggest that the likelihood of getting another chance is not very high. But maybe because I was so young at the time, 
that there was a window of opportunity still out there for me. And I found out that to be the case now. Um, but I was grounded before I ever came into using that phrase. I, I met a gentleman by the name of, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, his name escapes me, but there, there, was, there was a Navy SEAL in Austin, Texas, who I got close with. And he introduced me to that phrase because it was a part of their mantra as an organization. And uh, he, uh, it, it kills me that I, that, I, that his name is escaping me. I hope he don't watch this. But, uh, but that's, where, that's where I stole the phrase from and we adopted it at Texas. And, uh, and, and I carry it uh, with me along with the core values that we build our program on. And I think it's important. I talk to our players about it all the time. And uh, it really is, uh, I think it's a real thing. And I think that's what's going on today, even uh, whether or not you wear a mask. You know, who's that really about? Is it because you don't want to wear it? Or are you thinking about other people? And, uh, and I think you can apply that to so many things going on in the world uh, right now. And if you can just kind of take a step back and try to put yourself in other people's shoes or, see things through a different lens sometimes and do a better job listening. Uh, all things that I haven't always been good at, that I'm trying to improve on, that I've certainly have matured in a lot of ways. And uh, so that phrase is not just something we use as a slogan just to sound good. It's something that really has some meaning that we want our young people in our program to really take heed to. Coach Mark McGinnis. There Lieutenant you go. Colonel Mark McGinnis. There you go. Um, one thing, Coach, you, you talked about core values, and I've heard you speak before um, about your program's core values, and one of those values uh, is to respect women. Um, and with that, obviously I love that, for one. I, I love that on all aspects. But with that, is that more something internally with you that you brought to the program? Or do you look at that from perspective to help these young men understand the importance of respecting women? Uh, uh, both, you know, um, you know, I'll I, be honest with you, you know, like I, I tell my players, if uh, I love them, I love giving guys a second chance, but if you put your hands on a woman, you're going to have to get your second chance somewhere else. Cause I'm not ever going to be able to look at you the same because, and that's personal for me, you understand? So it's not that I don't believe a young man deserves another chance, but I know because of my experiences personally in my household, that it's just, it's gonna be hard for me to be the person to give them that second chance, you know? So for me, um, that, that's, that's real. That's just a real thing that I talk to my players about. So if, if you have that in you, I'm okay with helping you get help. But if I got to see you every day, uh, it's pro I'm probably not going to be fair to you. So, so that's just, uh, it's born in that. It's born in that. And now I've got a wife and a daughter. And, uh, and I do think sometimes going back to the number one core value we have, which is humility, which is tied to that, it's not about me, is that sometimes, like you mentioned with coaches, we get elevated as athletes 
and we get the delusion that we're, we're more important than we really are on a college campus or in the world at large. We, we sometimes get introduced to and embrace a delusion about our standing in the world because we're out there getting buckets and winning basketball games. And sometimes that delusion allows us to treat people a certain type of way. And that's why humility is so important. Um, and so I don't want our players to ever carry themselves like they think that they're more important than anybody else. Um, and so, uh, and certainly I don't want it to manifest itself in disrespect toward the law or toward the, the rules and regulations of a campus uh, or towards the way that you treat uh, the women on the campus. I don't want that music being played. I love hip hop, but um, there's certain things I don't want to hear um, that I that I that I don't think are uh, are healthy for young people to keep ingesting. And so I, I'm not trying to be a dictator with these guys. I understand the culture, and at the same time, there are some things that listen. I don't want that. When our women's team walks in the gym or walks into the weight room, I don't want them hearing that. When people are visiting our campus, I don't want people hearing that because I'm not about that. And this is my program and you happen to be in it. So um, at the same time, what you do in the dorms or what you do on your own, but uh, there's just certain things that, uh, that, that I'm not about. And, it, and it, it, definitely, it does come from a personal place. And, and, and at the same time, I understand what's going on around and you can't control everything these guys do. And I don't want them to think that that's what I'm trying to do. I just want them to be more mindful. You know, I love that coach. If I, um, if I come across any young guys, I'm telling them to come play for you. <laughs> <laughs> coach, can you, um, can you identify one unique quality or a gift and mentality that you have identified within yourself that allows you to keep to keep going in order to you know, to accomplish what you've accomplished. Oh man, man, y'all making this hard, man. I feel like I'm doing a job interview now. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think we talked about some things that I try to do a good job of, but I, I don't I don't always feel like I'm I'm great at it to be honest, you know. Um, like I said, I, I, it, there's certain guys in the business when I hear them speak, I'm like, man, this dude is so sharp. You know, um, there's something about hearing really intelligent people speak that inspires me and it humbles me. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I think one of the things that we're all going through right now is trying to inform ourselves more about our history about our government and the way it works, um, about our place in society as college coaches, because like we were just talking about, sometimes I think we make the mistake that I was just talking about young people make sometimes is we think we're more important than we are. And the reality is, is that we're really all disposable um, and we need to win. It's important to win because through winning, you get, uh, you get more of an opportunity to help young people. And so the competitive thing is of great value. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think uh, 
to answer your question, you know, we talked about it earlier is I, I do strive to be a good communicator in that I want my players to know uh, and my staff to know that I care about them. And, uh, and I want them to understand what our program is about, how we're going to go about winning, how we're going to uh, uh, conduct ourselves as a program. And, uh, and there's a certain level of communication I think you have to have for people to get what it is you're trying to give them. And that's an area where I need to continue to improve. Um, but I do think it is the, uh, one of the keys that have, has allowed me to kind of uh, be a good recruiter. Um, because if I'm passionate about the place that I'm at, I think I do a, a good job of communicating uh, that message to people in a way that uh, is trustworthy. And, uh, and, and, and I want to be that way as a coach. I want the guys to know when I'm tough on them, that it's coming from uh, not only just a competitive place, but a place of passion and caring. And, uh, and at the same time, I want to be able to say tough things and deliver bad news uh, in, in a way that uh, they can digest. And so um, I think that's all a part of being, you know, uh, honest and, and being able to communicate a message. And so I've tried to make that a strength, but I, I, I really don't feel like I always hit the mark. But you're talking about being a good recruiter and you have an individual on your staff that recruited your son while he was at another institution. And you hired the individual kind of based off the interactions he made with your son. Now, that may not be the only reason, but I've heard that story before. Can you speak to young coaches how the importance of how to carry yourself? Because I think that's a true example of you never know who's watching. Yeah, that's great. That's a, you guys did your homework, man. Um, Chris Kreider, who's on my staff, uh, he, uh, you know, my, my son grew up around this stuff. He's heard more recruiting calls than any kid could possibly hear because he's sitting right in the car. Um, so before he ever even thought about being a prospect, He's familiar with that dialogue and he's he's heard a kid's name. He's heard me get off the phone and tell him who that person was. And then he's seen that person arrive on campus, go through four years and graduate. Like he's been through that whole process before he had ever actually become a prospect himself. So by the time he was at an age where coaches were calling him, he had a, an ability to discern what he was hearing and who he was hearing from in a way that's different than the average prospect. Um, my wife, on the other hand, she don't know nothing about this stuff. And she, we've been married 22 years. Um, and so for me to turn to my son, who's a prospect now and my wife and say, of all the people you're talking to, and I would ask them separately for my own frame of reference, who impresses you the most? Who do you like the most? And separately, they both would say, I like, I like Coach Kreider. He seems like the most trustworthy and honest guy and the most consistent. Um, and I wouldn't have known that 
And so I was intrigued by him, not even thinking I was getting a job, but saying to myself, Depend if I do get one, depending on where it is, I'm gonna stay in touch with this dude because my son knows what he's hearing. And uh, and I got a lot of respect for my son as a young man, um, but also uh, he 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 knows what I do, and he's he's not in awe of all of this stuff because he's just been around it his whole life. So uh, I didn't know at the time that that Chris his background in Atlanta and that his wife being from Atlanta and all of those things. I only knew him through his job at Rice and the, and the Im impact that he had made on my wife and my son because in my wife's mind. Rice was number one. That was the school she wanted for him based on that interaction. And for him, um, he was talking to a bunch of people, but that guy stood out to him. So that meant a lot to me. No, that's awesome, Coach. Absolutely. I just wanted you to touch on that a little bit because I definitely thought that was a, a great story to hear that I would have loved for you to share to our listeners. So, Coach, as we wrap up, like we said earlier, this is the Black Excellence Podcast, and we deem individuals that we bring on this show um, to have excel not only in the profession but in life. And, and so we appreciate you guys for, especially you, uh, for paving the way for this next generation. And so with that being said, um, we feel that you are in the royalty seat and you have the crown amongst your head right now. But when that time comes and you step down, um, and it's time to pass that crown to the next generation. Uh, what's one message you will engrave into that crown um, to pass along to that next individual? Well, um, I, I like what you guys are doing. You know, I don't. I, I, it's hard for me to look at it in the context of a crown, but I'm gonna, but I'm gonna play along. Um, uh, but you know, I, I just did this on Thursday with my son. You know. I, uh, I dropped him off and, uh, and I text him the, 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 these words. And, uh, and I would say it to young people in general, because no matter what they're doing, you know, life is going to come with a level of turbulence. If you work hard and you're doing all the right things, there's not always guarantees you're going to get exactly what you want, even when you're on the right path. And my message to him was um, that uh, when things, get tough, I want you to always believe in yourself. When things are going well, I want you to always challenge yourself. And all the time, I want you to have a level of gratitude for the opportunity that you have and for all the people that have helped you along this journey. And, um, and I would say that to any young person, obviously it has some meaning because I had just drove off and left my man behind and those were the words that came to mind to share with him as a young man starting to chart his own path and be on his own. And we've tried to prepare him to be his own man. You know, people always ask me, well, why, why isn't he coming to play for you? And like I told you guys, I've been making my own decisions since I was 10. Well, at some point, he's going to have to make his own. And the longer he stays up under me, the longer it takes for him to start that journey of his own. So it was important for him to go somewhere else and do his own thing and be his own man. And I want him to be prepared that no matter how hard he works, there's going to come some tough times. And when they do, I want him to believe in himself. But when things are really going good, don't get complacent. 
keep challenging yourself and just be grateful that you've got the opportunity to do what you love and to get a free education and, and to be around good people and always be mindful of all the people that helped you get there and make sure you communicate that to them. Let people know you love them. Say it to the people you care about. Tell them you love them. Not just me and your mom and your sister, but other people use those words, tell people you love them and, uh, and, and be mindful and, and grateful for all the people that have helped you along your journey. I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Rising Coaches for partnering with us and giving us this platform um, to share these amazing stories. Real quick, guys, if you are not a member of Rising Coaches and you are in the basketball profession, you want to coach, you're a seasoned coach, you're a beginner coach, it does not matter. I want to encourage you to check out Rising Coaches. Um, join Rising Coaches and become a member of the largest coaching tree in basketball. Over 1,300 members from all levels, high school to NBA, gain access to over 1,000 hours of coaching clinics um, and build genuine relationships with other coaches. Rising Coaches provides the community and the resources that will help you have long-term success in the coaching industry. Please visit Rising Coaches to join or if you got any questions, hit me up.